0: You do me a favor, turn in your Bible to the Gospel of John. We'll be in the end of chapter 13 and the beginning of chapter 14. Uh, once again, it's, it's good to be back with everybody. I was gone last week. I was in, like I said, I was on the West Coast. I was in L.A. for a show, and then I was officiating a friend's wedding in Portland. And I don't know if you've ever seen the show Portlandia. It is entirely accurate it actually might be an understatement of how strange Portland is and how strange all the people there are. Um, So that was my world for a couple days over the weekend. I'm super glad that Mark Saunders, the senior pastor here at our church, was able to uh, step in and continue our time together in John's Gospel. And Mark in particular led us into this section of John's Gospel that is um, famous. It's well known. It's this event in Jesus's life Jesus' lice. Uh, Jesus might've had lice, who knows? Um, Jesus' life called the Last Supper. Uh, It's the last meal that Jesus eats with his disciples. And Mark talked about uh, Jesus washing the disciples' feet and what that means for us when it comes to service. But that meal takes a much darker turn as chapter 13 continues. Um, Being in Portland over the weekend for a wedding, there were a whole lot of meals that I ate with really good friends. Uh, the wedding that I was officiating, the, the groom was from Florida, and there was a whole table of people at this wedding who were all from Florida, and they represented like the Florida man stereotype really well but they were really, really good friends. And so it was cool to be on the other side of the country, spending time together with people who I hadn't seen in in maybe years in some cases, but we were all catching up. And even though it was over this weird Portland like vegan tofu scramble locally sourced food, we had a great time. Like we had a lot of fun hanging out and catching up. But I, I don't know if you've ever had this experience where there's a meal with friends that's going well and then it takes a dark turn. Like maybe somebody makes an offhanded comment that makes somebody else mad and the domino effect follows or or maybe somebody mentions something they're going through that they've sort of been hiding and things get bleak. And that's sort of what happens over the course of the last supper. The, The disciples have entered into Jerusalem with Jesus pretty excited about how things are going. Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey but being hailed as a king. Uh, The crowds take palm branches and lay them at Jesus' feet. And that may not mean anything to us, but but in Israel, the palm branch was almost like the equivalent of the bald eagle in the United States, right? Where the bald eagle sort of symbolizes freedom and America and everything that our nation stands for. So in Israel, palm branches were that. And so when they take palm branches and lay them at Jesus' feet, they're saying, you are our king. Like you are the one who's going to rule our country, And so everything's looking good at the beginning of the week. And Jesus has conflict after conflict with the religious leaders as the week continues until you get to the Passover meal, the last supper. And maybe the disciples are a little bit uneasy, but Jesus has had conflict before. We've walked through John's gospel, and he always seems to come out on the other side unscathed. And then he starts saying all the stuff about washing people's feet. And again, that's kind of weird, I'm sure, but Jesus has said weird things before. And so the disciples are, are probably maybe starting to wonder, but then the meal takes this much, much darker turn because in verse 21 of chapter 13, after saying all these things about washing the disciples' feet, we're told that Jesus is troubled in his spirit and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And that would have dropped like a bombshell because you, you've, got to, you've got to think that this group of people, these 12 men that Jesus is sitting with have spent the last three years together. Like they are each other's best friends. And they, they've all sort of given up everything to follow Jesus and see, see this through to the end. And what they think the end is, is Jesus becoming king over Israel. And Jesus says, one of you, one of you is gonna betray me. Like one of, one of these people who you thought was your friend, one of these people who you've spent the last three years with, one of these people that we traveled the entire ancient world with, they're about to, to undo everything. And so Jesus drops this bomb. And you can imagine like the vibe is, is starting to go south, right? Everybody's starting to go, oh, this is not nearly as fun as I expected this meal to be. And then Jesus starts saying things like what he says in verses 31 through to 35, where he says, actually, I'm going to be leaving soon and none of you can follow me. So, hey, you've followed, you've followed me for the last three years, but I'm about to go away and you can't go where I'm coming. Which again, causes this sort of like turmoil you can imagine in the group. And then finally, Peter's like, well, I'll go anywhere with you. I'll follow you absolutely anywhere. And then Jesus says this to him in verse 38. You will lay down your life for me, you say. Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you've denied me three times. And it's another bomb in the group and things just go from bad, one of you is gonna betray me, to worse, by the way, I'm going away and you can't follow me, to the absolute worst. Hey, Peter, the guy who kind of represents all the other apostles, who seems to really have his stuff together, you're gonna mess up too. And in about five to 10 minutes, Jesus completely pulls the rug out from under the disciples. This goes from being what they thought might be a celebratory meal to being a really, really heavy and grievous moment. And it's into that moment that Jesus speaks in chapter 14, verse one. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. There's a sort of twofold bomb that Jesus has dropped on the disciples. The first of them is one of your friends, one of the 12 is gonna betray me. And so you've got this tension in this circle of friends. And I wonder if you've experienced anything like this before. Like like the, the the clearest time that I can remember in, in some small way sensing this came when I was like a freshman in college, 18, 19. Um, I grew up from like childhood until seventh grade in a different church, but then from seventh grade all the way through until now I've been at this church. And so I went from like middle school all the way through to high school with the same group of people. We went on mission trips together. Uh, we, we hung out in service together. We sang songs together. We, um, we, we played in the worship band together. We were on leadership teams together. Some of us went to school together. Uh, we, we prayed for each other. We were this really tight-knit group, actually together longer than the disciples were together, but we didn't like travel the world in the same way. So maybe not as tight-knit as the disciples, but it was, it was a tight group. And when we hit college, one by one, most, not all, but most of these people, started making awful choices, just, just making terrible decisions. And, and it started with, yeah, that was dumb, and I'm not going to do that again. And, and it followed to, I know that's dumb, but, you know, I'm finding myself. And it proceeded to, I don't even think this is dumb anymore. I'm a Christian, and I'll do whatever I want. And, and then it followed into, I don't really know if I believe this Christianity stuff at all anymore. And it was one by one by one over the course of about a year or two that all of these people who I journeyed with, who I'd followed Jesus with, who I'd pursued the gospel with just imploded. And I, I remember every time that process happened because it, it, wasn't like, it wasn't like they all went through it at the same time, it was staggered. So it was two people here, a little while, one person here. Every time it happened, there were so many emotions that I felt. I, I felt betrayed, I felt angry, a lot of anger. I was really really angry during this season. But mostly I was just sad. I was just sad to see to see people that I had like walked with and trusted implode in front of me. And you can imagine for the disciples who've actually spent every night camping around the same fire with one another when they hear one of you is going to undo all of this. Just the grief that they experience. Jesus is saying, let not your heart be troubled. You've got to imagine they're more than just a little bit troubled. They are distraught. And maybe you've experienced this in a similar way to what I've just described, where you've seen somebody kind of walk away from the Lord and you've experienced the grief of that. Maybe you've grown up in the church and there's been a leader, like a pastor or an elder or somebody who you trusted who's just totally imploded. But there's a weight there that the disciples are feeling. There's... there's almost this, this image you can imagine because Peter is like the hothead. Peter is the guy who has convictions, but he doesn't have the self-control to follow through on his convictions, right? So he believes things really passionately and then just does the opposite of what he believes more often than not. And you can imagine as Jesus is saying this, like one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to turn your back on me. You can see Peter's face getting red, And I imagine Peter being like really short. I imagine Peter looking like Bilbo Baggins from The Hobbit, honestly. Like whether that's that's not biblical, that's not even like apocryphal, that's Travis's own imagination. This is the Travis Lowe interpretation of the Bible. So I imagine like this Bilbo Baggins Peter just getting madder and madder and kind of looking at all the disciples and thinking of the times where like, yeah, you you definitely seemed like you weren't really all in on this. And then his face gets redder and redder and redder until finally he's like, I don't know where you're going, but I'll follow you. I'm not gonna be like one of those people. Like I'm not gonna be like whoever it is that's gonna turn their back on you. And then Jesus looks at him and he says, no, you will too. You will too. Just so you know, by the end of the night, you will deny me just like this other person, Judas, betrayed me. All of us, I think, at some point or another, have the first experience of being let down by friends and being, being disappointed, being frustrated. All of us, I think, need to have the second experience of realizing, like Peter, that we are not above falling in the same way. Because Peter is convinced that he will never do the things that he's so upset about. Jesus says, nope, by the end of tonight, you will too. And so Jesus speaks into this, to these two griefs that are sort of swirling around the apostles. And he says, let not your heart be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. It's as as if he says to Peter, the same thing, he says it to the group and then he says it to him. But, but just to be clear, Jesus isn't saying to Peter, listen, you're gonna betray me three times before, or you're gonna deny me three times before the end of the night, don't worry about it. Like, it's not a big deal, you're fine. That's, that's not what he's saying. Any more than he says that to us when we stumble into sin and he goes, yeah, no worries. Pat's on the back, everybody's fine. No, I- instead he invites Peter ground his hope and his confidence in something other than himself. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in your friends and believe also in yourself. That would be the Disney movie translation of this passage, right? Like, don't don't get upset. Your friends are good people. They're gonna do the right thing. You're a good person. You can do it, Peter. Just have a little more faith in yourself. No, he he says, believe in God and believe in me. Because if... If you've grounded all your hope and all your confidence on all your peace and all your security, if you've grounded it in these 12, just so you know, one of them is going to fail you. And at some point or another, all of them are going to fail you. And Peter, if you've grounded all your hope and all your confidence and all your peace and all your security and your ability to follow me well without messing up, you're going to be real disappointed by the time that rooster crows in the morning. And your heart will be troubled. But it doesn't need to be if you believe in God and you believe in me. That's true for us too. Like when we, when our emotional stability, when our peace, when our confidence, when our hopefulness for the future is grounded in the people around us or in our own abilities, we are setting ourselves up to collapse because both of those things will fail us not just once or twice, but a thousand times. The only thing you have to do is look back in the last year of your life and think about how many stupid things you've done to know that you will fail yourself more than anybody else. And then think about all of the friends you might've let down to know that your friends will probably let you down just as much. And so Jesus takes our confidence, our hope, our security, and he grounds it not in the people around us. He grounds it in himself because Jesus is the one who will not fail. There's kind of a problem here. If if you'll remember in chapter 13, um, Jesus is talking to the disciples and he says, by the way, I'm leaving. I'm going somewhere else and you can't follow me. And then he tells Peter, you're going to betray me. And then he says, believe in God, believe in me. And you can almost imagine the apostles saying, man, that's all well and fine. Like, it sounds great for me to believe in you, but how am I going to do that when you're gone? You've been talking about this strange journey you're going to take you haven't given us any directions or any coordinates. Coordinates, coordinates. How, how am I going to do that? And more than that, Jesus, how do we really know that you're for us? How do we really know that you love us if you're not going to stay? Believe in God, believe in me. By the way, I'm, I'm dipping out. And so Jesus goes on, almost as if to answer this turmoil in their heart. In verse 2, he says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be. And you know the way to where I'm going. Um, some, something I, I've come to understand that I think Jesus is getting at here is that there are two forms of leaving. There's one sort of leaving that's born out of contempt. And then there's another sort of leaving that's born out of love. So let me explain what I mean by that. Um, When you get engaged, it's really interesting. I'm just learning this in the last couple of weeks. Um, Everybody comes out of the woodwork to give you marriage advice, whether you ask for it or not, (laughs) which is fine. I could use a lot of advice. Never been married before, don't know how that works. So advice is a good thing. Uh, But I was having a conversation with with a really, really good friend of mine um, who I love dearly who's just a a godly man. And we're sitting across the table in my kitchen and he's dumping hours of advice on me, which I barely remember. So hopefully it's somewhere in my brain and the spirit will bring it to remembrance when I need it. But one of the things he told me is he said, listen, at some point or another, you're gonna fight. You're gonna have an argument. And the temptation, especially when it's at its worst, is to think that the best thing you can do is say, I am so angry, I need to leave right now and come back when I'm in a better spot. He said, do not leave in the middle of a fight. He said, if you need to go to the other room, that's fine. If you need to pretend like you're going to the bathroom and just sit on that toilet until you feel better, that's fine, but do not leave that house angry because you're leaving in contempt. You're leaving as if to say, I'm so angry with you, I can't stand to be in your presence anymore. And that just causes all sorts of turmoil. So there's this leaving that's born out of anger. But there's another leaving that's born out of love. There, there's this interesting phenomena that's happened over the last couple weeks and is going to happen for the next few weeks. Um, I've been gone like every weekend for three or four days at a time which is really cool because you get engaged and then I'm just gone on all the days off that we have to actually hang out. So it's super romantic, sorry about that. Um, But here's why I'm gone. Because I'm trying to save up enough money to actually get married, right? So I've I've booked churches that I'm speaking at and places I'm leading worship and shows across the country in weird places with vegan food. And there's... There's all these things I've done, but I'm not leaving out of anger. I'm leaving out of love, right? I'm, I'm leaving because I, wanted, I want to, to pursue this future. That's why I'm going. So you can leave out of contempt or you can leave out of love. And so when Jesus says, I'm leaving, he's not saying I can't stand you all anymore. So I'm ch- checking out until I come back and I'm more upset, or less upset, right? This is not him going, I need to take a drive or I'm gonna crush you all. Jesus is saying, I'm leaving to prepare a place for you. So believe in God, believe in me, ground your hope in that. Know that I love you enough to leave for you. Um, My my mom's mom, my Yaya, is the the daughter of Greek immigrants. Uh, They came over, I think the the 20s or the 30s um, from right on the border of Turkey, but they didn't all come over at once. Uh, No, what happened is that um, the husband came over first because that was all the money they had was they could send one person to America and and go through the whole process of coming to America. And then he worked his tail off and paid to bring every other family member over one by one. And and you could look at that and you could say, oh my gosh, how much do you really love your family to leave? Because he went over not knowing what was going to happen, knowing that, that he may not see his wife for a year or two years or three years, however long it took to save up the money. So you could look at it that way, or you could look at it and go, he loved them enough to leave so that he could bring them to where he was. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I'm leaving you, but I'm leaving you not so you stay where you are, but so you can be where I go don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe in me. In my father's house, there's many rooms and I've gone to prepare a place for you. I've gone ahead of you. The the language of Hebrews, the passage we read tonight, he's the anchor for the soul who's passed into the heavenly realms. He's gone before us to bring us there. And so he's speaking into all this turmoil, saying, you have a hope. I love you enough to leave to bring you into the presence of the father. But he says this, and you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas responds in verse five and says, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also from now on you do know him and have seen him. Can I just say, I love Thomas. Like Thomas is probably my favorite apostle because Thomas needs things spelled out very, very clearly. And I'm the sort of person who does not do well in ambiguity. So like, for example, when I I go to the doctor with some sort of an illness and they say, I think you're fine, I go, what do you mean you think? You didn't get a 10-year degree to think I'm fine. Like, I am fine or I am not. And then they repeat it, right? Because for like liability purposes, they can't say you're fine and the off like 0.2% chance that something's wrong. That kills me. So I found a doctor who just tells me I'm fine, whether it's true or not, right? Because I, I can't live in the ambiguity. So Thomas is the same way. Jesus is saying, I'm going and you'll come with me one day and I'm going to prepare a place for you and you know the way. And Thomas goes, what are you talking about? You didn't give us an address. You didn't give us GPS coordinates. You didn't tell us which road to follow in Palestine. What do you mean we know the way? Give us a map. And Jesus says, I am the way. I am the way and the truth and the life. And nobody comes to the father but by me. Jesus is both the way into the presence of God. And he is the city towards which we journey. He is both the road and the destination. And this has troubled people for a long time. It's troubled people because what Jesus is very clearly saying here is that Christianity is not one road to God among many. Jesus is the only way. There is no way around that. This is not, um, the world religions are not Baskin Robbins or um, Burger King where you can have it your way and you'll all end up in the same place. Jesus says there is only one way into the presence of God and it's me. C.S. Lewis um, in uh, his book, the, the Silver Chair sort of illustrates this. Um, there's a girl named Jill in the story and, and Jill finds herself in this, this faraway country um, She's thirsty, she's been, she's been climbing to the top of this mountain looking for help and she finds this stream and she's so thirsty and she walks towards the stream and she notices that, that Aslan is there, this figure in the Chronicles of Narnia that symbolizes Jesus. But she doesn't know who Aslan is, it's just a lion to her and she's terrified as she should be of a lion sitting next to a stream. And so she a- approaches a little bit closer and she asks the lion, hey, would you mind going somewhere else while I take a drink from this stream? And the lion just laughs at her. And she realizes in that moment, Lewis's words, she might as well have asked a whole mountain to move for her convenience. She realizes that the request is ridiculous. But she's getting thirstier and thirstier because she can hear the, the water that's going to save her life. And then she goes to the lion and she says, can you promise that like, I'll be safe? And He says, No. I can't make that promise. And then she takes another step closer. And she says to the lion, have you ever like eaten anybody before? Aslan says, I have devoured women and men and kings and empires and cities and realms. And that doesn't make her feel any better. (laughs) So then she says to Aslan, because she's trying to bargain with him, right? This is his stream. Maybe I can, I can do this, like deal or no deal, take it or leave it. And, and so she asks for safety, and he doesn't promise it. And so finally she says, It looks like I'm just going to have to go find another stream. And Aslan says, There are no other streams, there's only this one. And so you have a choice do you trust the lion, or do you wander into the wasteland? That's the picture that, that, that Jesus gives us here. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Everything I've promised that your heart wouldn't be troubled. This stream, you will only find through me. Ultimately, when, when you think about it, it, it couldn't really be any other way. If, if we go back to um, the, the story of my great, great grandparents on my mom's side, um, the father who comes to America to bring his family over, the one who goes ahead to bring those he loves behind him. That's the picture that Jesus gives us here. He says, I'm leaving, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to the tomb. I'm ascending into heaven, into the presence of the father. I'll bring you there. But you have to come through me. So, Jesus is both the one who's gone ahead to prepare the way for us so that our hearts wouldn't be troubled, and he's the one who will bring us home. It's in light of that, it's in light of all that Jesus is about to do in John's gospel, all Jesus has done as we look back in history, that he says to the disciples, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. And If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to bring you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So I don't know what's troubling you currently, whether it's the failure of friends, whether it's the failure in your own heart. but Jesus invites you to turn your gaze upwards, not outwards to the people around you, not inward to some sort of spiritual light in you, but upward to the one who's gone before us the one who brings us home. There are no other streams, just that one. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Um, We thank you that in Jesus, you've made a way. You've made a way that we can be in your presence. Um, God, we thank you um, that Jesus speaks these words of comfort, not just to the disciples, but to us, that our hearts don't need to be troubled when we ground our hope in you. And in Christ. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take um, the words of uh, John's gospel and that you would press them into our hearts, that you would convict us, challenge us, encourage us, give us hope, ground our hope in Jesus' work. He's just to believe more, to love you more, and to have a greater confidence in your love for us. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.